I know some of you are very interested in the world of investments. We're talking about being collectively invested today. Uh, some of you are like into day trading and following Wall Street and all that, and I am not one of you. <laughs> I, I married an econ teacher who takes care of all of our finances and all that kind of stuff, but I am very intrigued by stories of those who made and lost fortunes through their investments. Have you heard the story of uh, Jared Kenna? Jared Kenna, uh, in uh, I think it was the early 2010s, uh, was an early adopter of Bitcoin, and he uh, bought 5,000 Bitcoins for 20 cents apiece. And when they got up to $258 per Bitcoin, he sold and became an instant millionaire. That's pretty good. And uh, I'm sure he may have had some, some regrets at selling when he did once they hit $25,000 apiece like they are today. But still, I mean, that's pretty good to make a fortune in a day by selling something you bought for 20 cents apiece. Um, on the other hand, have you heard about uh, Justin Bieber's investment? Uh, now, I, again, this is a world that I don't know anything about, but there are things called NFTs. Have you heard of these? Non-fungible tokens, is that right? So the, the thing on the left here is the NFT that he invested in. It's kind of like a digital piece of art, I guess, kind of a, a unique JPEG, if you will, that he bought that picture for $1.3 million in January of last year. And now it's valued at less than $60,000. Like, ooh, that hurts. That's a big hit. You know, he's rich. He has enough money to buy plenty more of these kind of board apes. So um, anyway, more than where you will invest your money and what's going to go up and what's going to go down, I am interested in the question, where are you going to invest your time? Where are you going to invest your gifts, your talents? Where are you going to invest your very life? Now, that's a, that's a question that should kind of burn in our hearts. What is worth your investment of your very life? We're in the third of a four-week series uh, that we do every fall on the nature of the church. And if you're visiting, this is a great time for you to, to be here today because we're exploring what kind of a church family we want to be. And you can listen in and see if this is maybe the kind of church family you want to be a part of. Two weeks ago, we talked about that we want to be a church that is joyfully faithful. In other words, we want to be a church that doesn't take ourselves too seriously, lighthearted, full of humility and laughter, but we want to take God very seriously. So we want to be joyfully faithful. We, last week, Benji talked about how the, we want to be rela- uh, relentlessly relational. That is, not just settle for surfacey kind of relationships in and out on Sundays, kind of where you come each week to get your spiritual gas tank filled and then leave. No, we want to be a spiritual family, building deep relationships with one another. And today, we're going to talk about how we want to be a church that is collectively invested. What do we mean by that? That means that we have no interest in being a church that simply puts on programs and events and services like this that may draw a crowd or maybe simply help you be the best version of you that you can be. That's not why we're here. That's not why we're doing this. We want to be a community that is investing our very lives together for something that is going to last eternally, the kingdom of God. 
So each of these weeks, uh, we're, we're looking at these topics through the lens of a story in the Old Testament that's kind of an obscure story found in the book of Haggai. I invite you to turn there now. If you don't know where Haggai is, it's the third to last book in the Old Testament. So if you can find the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, and then turn left and go back through uh, Malachi and through Zechariah, and then probably one page in your Bible is the book of Haggai. As you're turning there, we're going to read from chapter 2 in just a moment. Let me again give the context of what's going on in the book of Haggai. 586 BC was the year that basically the quintessential Jewish nightmare happened. Um, that was the year that the Babylonian Empire and their armies marched into Israel and ransacked the city of Jerusalem. They utterly destroyed the temple. They tore it down uh, brick from brick. And, and they took many of the people of Israel, many of the Jews, into captivity. They took them into exile. You've probably heard of the Babylonian exile. That's what it is. They took them hundreds of miles from their homeland. And uh, that, that was pretty awful. <laughs> to say the least, right? Now, fast forward about 70 years, and a new empire is in control, the Persian Empire, and King Darius of the Persians uh, d- makes a declaration that all the exiles can go back to their homeland. And so all these Jewish exiles come, make their way back to Jerusalem. Now, just think for a minute. It's been almost 70 years. So the, the kids who left who were real small when they took Israel captive, are now coming back into Jerusalem as old men and old women with their grown children and their grandchildren, maybe even their great-grandchildren. And they're coming back, and they, they begin to make a life for themselves. They start rebuilding their homes. After a time, God sends his prophet, Haggai, uh, to, to deliver a message to the governor of the Jews named Zerubbabel, to the high priest, whose name is Jeshua, and then to all the rest of the people. And his message is, you've been building your own houses, but my temple, my house, still lies in ruins. So get to work building the temple. And so they do. They start to get to work, and they start to rebuild the temple, but pretty soon they start to get discouraged because, well, this, this picture that they've had in mind of rebuilding the temple in all its glory It's just not meeting their expectations. It's kind of paltry, to be honest. And so that's where we pick up in Haggai chapter 2. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, uh, let's do that now. So listen to God's word from Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, saying... Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, 
In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Keep your Bibles open. So, this message that came through the prophet Haggai, did you hear it? There are two parts to it. The first part is very simple. Be strong. You heard it three times. Be strong. Do the work. Be strong. Get to work. I've got a work for you to be collectively invested in, and that is to to build the temple together. Uh, And that was an important uh, word to them, to take action. But the second part of the message is this. I've got work for you to do, but I am going to provide my presence and my resources to make this work possible that you are called to do. So look at verse 6 with me, if you will. In verse 6, after telling them, do the work, do the work, do the work, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, the dry land, I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory. Glory greater than that of the former house. Now, what does he mean when he says, yet once more, I will shake the heavens of the earth? That implies that there has been a first shaking, right? If you were to flip, I don't turn there now, we don't have the time, but if you were to go back to, to the time when the first covenant was established at Mount Sinai, you can read about it in Exodus 19. Uh, God came down on the mountain, appeared to, to Moses, And it said the mountain shook and there was a great earthquake. Now, it was not just a coincidence that there happened to be a seismic event on that day when Moses went up there. It was a sign that God was there, that he was present and active, and that he would would help these people to live out the fulfillment of their part of the covenant. Now, God says, through the prophet Haggai to these people, Again, I will shake things up in such a way. I will be present and I will bring my resources to bear once more. And there will be glory. He's promising them to be with them, to promise to act, to bring his resources to bear. So two parts of the message. Be strong, do the work. On the other hand, trust me that my resources are going to be enough for the work that you have to do. Got it? Be strong, do the work, trust me for the results. So that's the message to them. Now, with that story ringing in our minds, I want you to fast forward in your mind 500 more years. Now, the temple has gotten a massive overhaul by Herod the Great. It's much larger, much more ornate than it ever was before during the time of Haggai or even during the time of Solomon. It's just an amazing thing. But dramatic events are about to unfold. Events that are going to have huge ramifications for the temple itself. 
What happened then? Well, you know, a man named Jesus of Nazareth walked onto the scene. And John spoke of it. Let me fast forward through this. We don't need those. John begins his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the word. It's kind of a nickname for Jesus. He was the way God communicated to us. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then down in verse 14 of chapter one, these amazing words, and that word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you've been to uh, many church services and you've heard this preached on, you probably know but that, that that phrase, made his dwelling among us, is it, the verb could be translated, he pitched his tent, he tented among us, or maybe even better, he tabernacled among us. Do you remember the tabernacle? The tabernacle was the tent that was kind of a portable temple for the people of God as they were working their way through the wilderness before they got into Israel. And so here Jesus is being described as the new temple of the new covenant, the place in which God's glory is is fully on display. Now, in the very next chapter of John's gospel, Jesus is found in the temple precincts in Jerusalem, and he witnesses all the merchants selling and buying and all that stuff, and he is ticked, and he starts flipping over tables. Do you remember that? And and the, the, the Jewish leaders say, tell us what sign you have, what authority do you have to be doing this? And Jesus responds with these words. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Not destroy this temple behind me, but destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Well, they're confused. And they say, this building project to, to make this temple glorious has been going on for 46 years, and you're going you're gonna to raise it up in three days? And then John, the gospel writer, says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Again, Jesus is claiming to be the one in whom God dwelt uniquely, through whom God's spirit was at work, making the old temple obsolete and bringing a new and greater glory than had ever been seen before. Now, not surprisingly then, when Jesus comes, establishing a new covenant with us through his death and resurrection, God provides the same sign as he did when the first covenant was established. And that sign was an earthquake, remember? So when we read in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus was hanging on the cross and he gave up his spirit. It says next, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the mountains were split. And two days later on, on Sunday morning when he was raised from the dead, we read now after the Sabbath at dawn, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb and suddenly there was a severe earthquake Again, what's going on? Is this just like a crazy coincidence of, you know, seismic activity? No. The point, like God said to Haggai, again, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will do a new thing and I will bring a new glory to the temple. 
And they had no idea that he was talking about a completely different kind of temple, the temple of Jesus' body. Now, question for you. If Jesus' body was the temple, what happened when Jesus' body ascended into heaven? The answer, of course, is that his body continued to be the temple to this day. Not his physical body, but his spiritual body. We are the body of Christ. And so the church is the new temple of God, the place where God is active and present, working out his plan to reconcile people one to another and us to God himself. Each and every member, this is so important. Listen, if you've tuned out for a minute, tune back in for this. Each and every member of the church has, has been given a, a sacred function and an active role to play as priests in the new temple of God. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, near the end of your New Testament, just for a moment. Peter is reflecting on all of this. You can imagine he's walked with Jesus for three years. He saw him die. He's he's seen the resurrected Jesus. And then he's reflecting on on all that this means for him and this little fledgling church that's that's getting going. And he says this in in 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you hear that? Let me say it again. Each and every member of the church has been given a sacred function and an active role to play in God's kingdom. And I want to ask, do you see yourself this way? Is having a spiritual vocation, a spiritually important role to play in the kingdom of God? How many of you grew up playing soccer? Yeah, a lot of soccer players. I grew up playing soccer. My freshman year of high school, I wanted to try out for the school soccer team. And there was all these kids who came and I was pretty discouraged. This is not going to happen. And I made the team. Can you hear? Let me, let me hear it for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I was feeling pretty good about myself for like a week until I realized that I would never see the playing field. <laughs> I was buried so far on the bench that I, you know, I couldn't see the grass from where I was sitting. Um, but I got to the point where I would, uh, I would not even take off my sweatsuit to start the game. You know, I'd go warm up and everybody's wearing their sweatsuits. And then the people who play, you know, planning on playing would take off their jackets sweatpants. And uh, that was just the life I lived. I sitting at the end of the bench, right? Until one day I hear the coach say, Wilbanks, go in the right mid. And I realize, oh my goodness. I, I, so I start taking off my sweats and I couldn't get them over my cleats. So then I had to take off my cleats and pull the sweats off and get my cleats back on. And by the time I had laced up my boots again, I had missed my shot. <laughs> I was like, oh, there, there it goes. I want to let you know, it is fun to be on a team, but it is even more fun to play in the game, right? Anybody like to play? I just wanted to play. Let me play, coach. Listen, 
when you put your faith in Jesus, it's not just about a personal relationship with you and God. It is about that. But you become part of a team. And even more glorious than that, you get to play. Everybody gets to play. Not everybody gets a trophy like an AYSO, but you get to play. And it's fun to play. There should be no bench warmers on Team Jesus. No one has to sit and watch other people have all the fun. Now, let me just pause for a moment and say, by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean you get to play the exact position you might want to play. So if somebody comes in and think, man, that band sounds really good. It looks really fun. And you might say, I want to be part of the worship band. And so we say, go talk to James Aslan. He's our worship pastor. And he might say, you know, well, what instrument do you play? Do you play the drums or guitar and bass? And if you say no, and he said, well, how about, you know, vocalist then? And you say, well, I can't really carry a tune. Uh, He's going to probably kindly point you to maybe you can like do the slides or something like that. Like not everybody gets to do exactly what they want to do. But the, the church has coaches to help you find what you are gifted to do. If you don't like kids, you're not going to be a Sunday school teacher, but you, you might have some other uh, way that you can, you do have some other way that you can serve this church. Not only inside the walls of the church, but outside. Everybody gets to play and everybody has a role as a spiritual priest serving God and serving his kingdom. So whether you spend your days in a classroom as a student or a teacher or a courtroom, whether you work in the trades or in an office, whether your job is keeping track of numbers or a newborn, there is a place for every Christian in the kingdom of God. Every person has a spiritual calling in which to serve God and advance his kingdom. So friends, God has a work for us to do, and we need to hear the same message that we heard from the prophet Haggai. People of Santa Barbara Community Church, be strong. Do the work. Be strong. There's work to do for us together. This is what we mean by being collectively invested. Now, there are unlimited ways to serve in God's kingdom. You might volunteer for Young Life, or you might serve in the rescue mission uh, serving meals. You might be a storyteller for our Sunday school classroom or, or lead a home group. But if you're not sure where to begin, where to start uh, being active, and I would suggest this, just start to think about being a good teammate. So much of the New Testament tells us this is how we are to serve one another. So there's maybe 50 places in the New Testament where we hear uh, one another, do this for one another. And I want you, church, to, to speak to each other these great words reminding us of what it means to be a good teamwork. So we're going start, to start with this side over here, and I want you to speak these words to that side of the room, and then you're going to do the same. So here we go. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This side. Wonderful. Excellent. Last one. 
That's great. So we could go back and forth, but as priests of God, these are things that we, ways that we serve one another and serve God's kingdom. To be a church where these things happen regularly, sorry to say this, will take a significant investment of our lives together, oftentimes being inconvenient and costly. But friends, we're convinced that this vision of church life is worth the cost. It's worth the inconvenience. It's worth the investment of our lives together. Santa Barbara Community Church, as we begin a new year, be strong and do the work. Invest yourself for the glory of God with the people of God around you in kingdom endeavors. And may I say, if you're visiting and and you think this is not the church that's the right fit for me, go find another church where you can invest yourself for the glory of God. Now, I'm almost done, but there were two parts of Haggai's message. Do you remember? Do the work, be strong. The other side was trust God for the results. Trust God for the results and the glory that might come from that. Trust in God's powerful presence and his resources to do what he wants to get done. So I was having a conversation with a friend this week and we started talking about parenting and how many parents who've raised their children in the Lord carry a a burden of, of shame or guilt if their children are not walking with the Lord. And they've, they may have heard the proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and, it, and when he gets, grows old, he will not depart from it. And they've taken that as a promise, and so they think, man, I must not have trained my children the right way. I must not have done the right work. I must not have invested myself in the right way. Maybe I didn't send them to the right school, or maybe our family devotions weren't quite what they should have been, or... You know, maybe we didn't pray regularly enough together, whatever. And they carry this weight, uh, weight of, of grief and, and shame. But uh, this friend shared a, a sermon with me about this. And it was a very good sermon. And in the sermon, he went into why that understanding of that proverb was prob- problematic. And there, there are many reasons, but the primary reason is because it can make your children's salvation rest upon your parenting ability, which we know is just not true. No one in this room right now, if you're walking with Jesus, if you love Jesus, is that true simply because you had godly parents. Many of us probably had parents who did not love God, did not love Uh, know Jesus Christ and God in his grace saved you. And that is true for each and every one of us. If we're walking with Jesus, it's because of God's grace in our life. Now, I'm not saying that parenting is not important, only that God's presence and power are the indispensable ingredients in our salvation. Parents, continue to invest yourself in teaching your children about the Lord. But listen, this is where I want to bring it back and round us up. It will take the Lord's shaking in your kids' lives, opening their eyes to the the need for salvation, bringing them to the point of, of seeing the goodness and grace of God and submitting themselves to Christ for them to be saved. And the same is true for all the work of the church. You know, we could have the best preaching. We could have the best Sunday school classrooms. We could have the best home group study guides. 
We could have the best mission strategies, but if God is not in it, no glory. No glory. So, SBCC, as we begin another year together, I want to call you, I want to urge you, I want to invite you to be strong and do the work. Whatever work God has put in front of you, you know what it is. But do the work trusting in God for his resources, his provision, his power to do something significant in your life and through your life to the praise of his glorious grace. Can you say amen to that? Let me pray for us and then bring us to the Lord's Supper. Lord, may this be true in our church. May we be a people who are collectively invested in, in your work, celebrating your goodness of our life. May we be invested together in the work of worship, in the work of evangelism, in the work of fellowship and caring for one another, bearing each other's burdens, praying, doing our part. But Lord, we recognize today that we need you. We are utterly desperate for you. And so we pray that you would stir us up, that you would do a new work in our church's life and in our life, that you would meet us by your grace and your power, that you would do new things in our midst, things that would testify to your amazing grace and that would be cause for celebration and glory for many who do not yet know the Savior. May this be true this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to this table now. This bread, this cup, remind us that, that Jesus' investment, he didn't diversify to minimize his risk. He went all in. God sent his son into the world knowing that he would die for that express purpose so that we might be forgiven of our sins, reconciled to the Father, and so that we might have a part to play in his kingdom work. So if you know him, only if you know him, I want to invite you to come to this table to celebrate your redemption and ask him as you come, as you feed on these uh, tokens of his grace for strength to serve him this week in his name. So let's come and worship together.